Today on Semi-Intellectual Musings, Matt learns where babies come from. We go down the rabbit holes of Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 and learn that it's more about life than books. And we both recommend to keep on reading. Woman, woman, tell me your name. like my feet, my my back, like, oh, everything. Like, how are you feeling, man? Because uh, I know you got back issues, but... My back is sore, but it always is sore. Yeah, it's uh, like, oh, I'm more heady, but it's always heady. Yeah. <laughs> so I get that. But yeah. my feet, my wrists, ankles, uh, my hands, like, my hands are all cracked as shit. Yeah. Um, I, I was out there for, like, three 12-hour days doing yeah. that. Yeah, it's crazy, man. It's, um, it's such um, a huge amount of work, but it's also, like... You know, it's just like flinging dirt around. So it's like, how bad could it, you know, go? I guess. Yeah, I can't I really mess anything up. Yeah. I mean, even if I tried. Yeah, yeah. So what's the next project? Uh, it's going to be sinking some pipes. <laughs> We're going to do some <laughs> irrigation work. That's funny, talking about sinking pipes, man. I uh, went to uh, my first parenting class uh, a couple weeks ago. We go on Saturdays. And uh, yeah, that's kind go? of a trip, man. Um, it's interesting, the... Like the teacher is like a, a practical nurse or whatever those people are called. Nur- nurse, nurse practitioner. Yeah. That's it. Thank you. Um, and I, I love nurses, you know, but she's like very like by like textbook. And now we talk about this and now we talk about that. So she's like not the best like instructor in the world, but the people in the class seem really cool. And um, it's interesting how they set it up. We go for three classes, like three Saturdays. The first one is on like labor and birthing. The second one is on breastfeeding. That's what we just had this a uh, couple of days ago. And then the third one, I guess, will be like taking baby home. Okay. And it's kind of crazy. So, like, I think this is pretty typical of these classes, but they, um, in the first one, they showed a video of somebody, like six different people, uh, six different women giving birth. So, this isn't some sort of myth. They actually show you the yeah, videos. Yeah, they show it. Yeah. And yeah. what's the purpose of these videos? I thought it was to just gross us out and to like prep us, but after seeing it for the first time, um, I think it's be- is to demystify it. Oh, okay. Like when you look at it, you're like, oh, okay. Like, like it's not so bad. Know. Yeah. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. And like, I can, that's the quickest way to get hate mail from all, any female listener that we have. So I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't uh, say it was not so bad. Like, but um, there's definitely like, I would say it seems like um, birthing techniques and, the technology of it, not just like things, but actually like how to give birth and like how to breathe properly. That knowledge has, has improved, I think drastically over the last three really? years. So like we're um, reading at home, a book, it's called hypnobirthing and it's all about like meditative birthing practices. Huh. And so it's what, like, what, what does a meditative birthing practice look like? Like literally either me put, using triggers and techniques that we've practiced with my, my wife um, to put her into like a meditative state. So some of it is like rhythmic touching and other things called anchoring where you just put a hand on the shoulder um, midway through your meditation practice. And then when she's in labor and we're doing one of these meditations, I can put my hand on her shoulder and it's a cue for her to go twice as relaxed. Oh, so it's like okay. this trigger just by like touching her shoulder. Um, so there's all these techniques. And then um, we're also 
using midwives. So um, that's something we can, yeah. Yeah, no, no. T- talk to us about that. Do you? So you said midwives. Is that one or multiple? Well, when you go with a, so we live in Ontario. Um, Phil lives in Quebec, even though we're just like a short drive away from each other. Um, so I'm sure it's different province by province. But in Ontario, um, if you go with a midwife, first of all, you discontinue your care with your physician for the period of your pregnancy and birth. Okay. So like you switch over temporarily to the midwife. Uh, for your pregnancy care. And then if my wife needs like, um, she needed like a massage therapy, like prescription, she has to go back to her doctor because midwives can't write prescriptions. Another thing that midwives can't do, uh, which is important, I think for Canadian listeners to know, um, they can't collect um, the, what is it? The cord blood and the umbilical cord. Cause in Canada we have a um, stem cell bank. Right. Yeah. And I didn't know this and, which is pretty cool, and it's used for like research purposes yeah. and a few treatments. Um, but just like a blood bank, it's um, stem like stem cells from, from the umbilical cord, cord. Yeah. exactly. But because we're using a midwife, they're not rated to collect that sample. And truth be told, it's just like putting it into a plastic bag when, right. and wear gloves. You know, like it's not that complicated. Um, so those are the disadvantages, but the many advantages are we get two midwives at the at the birth, um, the midwife will come to our house like when Mel starts going into labor and um, stay with us until it's time to go to the hospital so you don't have to wait around at the hospital. We're choosing a um, birth, we think, in, in a hospital rather than like a birthing center, which Ottawa also has. It's like a, it's like your, it looks like your living room. It's got right, like yeah. a fireplace and like a bed and all the, all the paraphernalia. They make it comfy. Want. Yeah, they make it comfy, which it, it looks pretty appealing. Um, we're actually going for a, a tour next week of a birthing center. So we might go that option, but um, yeah, it's um, really good quality of care. Um, Midwives are almost exclusively women. Um, They have like hundreds and hundreds of birth experiences under their belt. Um, And the quality of care is just superior, man. Like I would, as a heterosexual white male, I would recommend midwives to any woman who's, um, I'm going to be uh, delivering a baby. So you said that um, you're going to deliver in a hospital. The midwives go into the hospital with you? Yeah. Yeah. And if you need like an epidural or something like this, then the gun anesthesiologist would come in. And um, and then if there's any sort of, God forbid, like complications or whatever, then you're in the hospital. That's one of the right, yeah. downsides of a birthing center because then you'd have to go from the center to the hospital. But in Ottawa, everything's like a 10-minute drive away. So the birth center is like 10 minutes away from the hospital that our midwife has privileges at. That's another wrinkle. With midwives, they only have privileges at certain hospitals. So ours just happens to be at like the Carling Hospital, the central right. one. So, And how far of a drive from your place are these uh, hospitals or birthing centers? Uh, the hospital is like 15 minutes and I have driven four different routes there. Okay. So, I, so yeah. you anticipated my next question. Yeah, right? yeah. Like... In, uh, yeah, it's like Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. Like when I'm <laughs> so you can to... do it in 15 minutes. I think so. Yeah. yeah. So do you have a plan for the day yet? Um, how you think it's going to go? We're going to make like a go bag, like a, my yep. go bag, right? Um, um, but we've also heard that it's not good to bring like everything from your fucking closet no. to the hospital no. because you're not really there that long anymore, right? And if you have an extended stay, then like my parents and her parents will be in town, so we can just send them back to the apartment. We got tons of friends that can go over yeah and this guy this guy can be a runner yeah exactly so like it's actually it feels like we're getting it's like more significant than getting married is having your first kid because you're just surrounded by like love and friendship and happiness 
And uh, that's what I'm most appreciative of. Oh, that sounds really neat. Yeah. And especially like living in Ottawa with all my family uh, back in British Columbia and her family's too. Um, it's been really nice to have like my dad's sister and her family like embrace us and all the friends just sort of rally around. And it's, uh, yeah, I'm really thankful. So um, I I have received an invitation for a baby shower. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That's coming up soon. That that is coming up soon. I've uh, we've purchased your your the gifts. Yeah, and no spoilers. I don't want to know. No, I'm not going to spoil no, it. That is actually a tip, though. Um, I didn't know this, but just like when you're getting married and you do a wedding registry, there's baby registries for baby showers. So you know, if you're organizing a baby shower, I recommend <laughs> doing a registry. Now, I will confess, I went off registry. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Primarily because Mel already had a pretty, my Mel, already had a pretty good idea about what to get you guys. That's perfect. uh, Like months ago. Oh, that's awesome. Like from the moment she found out that you guys were pregnant. um, Oh, I'm so excited. You waited a while to tell me. Yeah, Um, yeah. because it was an awkward time and like she told me right before we went home for like Christmas and stuff. Right, that's what happened. And I had to like hold off telling all my friends in Ottawa um, before I got back from Christmas because we felt like we should tell our families first. Yeah, for sure. it started leaking out like Mel's um, uh, co-worker, she just works in a two-person office, um, found out like right away. They're like very good friends, like best friends or whatever. And yeah. and she's the one who's actually organizing the baby shower. So thank you, Lindsay. Um, and then her boss found out the uh, um, they were popping a bottle of champagne. It was the end of the parliamentary session. And uh, the boss is like, so Mel, do you want a cup? And she's like, uh, maybe later. Uh, and it's like, Mel's never turned down a drink. Right, <laughs> God yeah, bless her soul. Yeah. But like, <laughs> she's not a slosh, but she doesn't turn down champagne. Um, and uh, then she's just like, are you pregnant? And then it's like, eh. Uh, a little okay. thing where they all jump up and down yep. like in little skippies and flap with their hands. <laughs> I, I can picture that. Yeah, 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 it was pretty exciting. Uh, I told Evan like pretty pretty soon. Yeah. Um, where where did I tell you? You told me we, uh, we I had organized pool? after the holidays. Yet. Yeah. So I had organized after awesome. the holidays to get together with a few friends and go play some pool. Yeah. And it turned out that you were the only one that could make it that night. Yeah. <laughs> so so it was like we, a good time. Uh, yeah. So you told me then, and then. Uh, I think I proceeded to buy you several rounds oh, of drinks. Oh, yeah. We went out after. The, uh, Phil treated me. And yeah. then, like, I stiffed him on the very last bill, like, uh, the last place. I was. I had a pint of, like, this delicious beer, maybe even two. I can't remember about that two. point. $11 was $11 a pint. That's awesome. I remember that. $11 a pint? It was an upscale micro-brew tasting place. But, yeah. Um, and then, like, I was. I felt like I was way too drunk. Because like, there was, like, it was, like, Phil and uh, Mel and then, like, all of Mel's friends. Yeah. So, I, I didn't want want to like make an ass of myself so i like abruptly got up and just left like yeah. in a drunken state oh and no I was you're like stumbling home no one so everyone uh actually were like uh no one commented that we we're like, uh, like you know oh, but <laughs> so we, we so we played pool we had maybe i don't know like three pitchers there four pitchers there maybe and then i i went on the hard stuff so we both had a few sh- and then we went out oh man it, the next morning was rough <laughs> that's awesome and it's like so rare to see phil like intoxicated like he's got a oh, much better liver than me gone. and he was like tankered just with me and it was so much fun because we we're at like the same level of drunkenness yeah 
And it was like euphoric drunkenness. Exactly. Yeah. It wasn't the kind when like we started to cry and do all that kind of stuff. <laughs> we just kind of happy. Yeah, like a Wednesday night. <laughs> and it wasn't, I remember we bust uh, between places, like no driving while drinking. Oh God, so no. So we bust. No. Um, and, God uh, bless Ottawa, man. It's got a great transit system. And I remember being up to the so happy. <laughs> yeah. So we stumbled. I remember being so happy that we got on a bus like almost immediately and it was empty. There was only like maybe two people i have no recollection uh, like i remember leaving orange monkey yeah and then we magically appeared in uh downtown ottawa yeah in <laughs> and the i was market. like oh, okay <laughs> yeah no that was a good time so that's when you told me uh, about that yeah. and uh, i believe i gave you a book it was a walking book yeah yeah it's yeah. right by my bed yeah yeah so yeah. no that you know you told me the right way and uh but anyway <laughs> and then i stiffed him at the end and he and couldn't st- say anything because i'm a new father well exactly <laughs> Uh, so it's called the Surrey shuffle, the Surrey shuffle. It's like the bait and switch. Yeah, totally. Hey, look, uh, I'm going to have a kid. Peace. <laughs> Takes all my money. Hey, you're going to eat those leftovers. You just finish everyone else's beer and just walk out the door. Oh, that was another thing. <laughs> so Matt, Matt comes over from my bachelor party. Uh, so do you remember this? No. Yeah. So we went, we went for, so we went for pizza right so i pay a round of pizza for everyone we we go for pizza and then uh all the guys come over to our place i remember being here yeah yeah we're playing darts and shit yeah we're playing darts really cool friends too yeah we all gelled really good yeah some good good tunes going good good discussions and uh the leftover pizza that i brought which i was going to take out and have kind of like as a midnight snack and share it around i had left the box on the kitchen table and then ha- halfway through the night, I turn around, I see Matt sitting in front of the pizza box and the pizza box is empty. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. So I was like, oh shit, that was my plan for the snacks. <laughs> so like I quickly like threw together some chicken wings and like some, I don't know what, like chips or whatever. <laughs> like it was fine. But I just remembered like looking over and you had these like <laughs> eyes that like were, were kind of like. The oh, far away stare. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, I was just gone. <laughs> just eating pizza, but happy. But it, like, right, like. I or was I, like I, guilty. I, no, it was definitely the guilty eyes. Yeah, it was yeah. like the Surrey under, yeah. under like belly. There's nowhere, to, there's nowhere to shuffle to, man. I was just like trapped in your basement. I was like, oh shit, I should be outside right now. <laughs> I fucked up my shuffle. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, okay. Maybe that's, uh, okay. That's enough. Uh, that's enough stories. Um, welcome to the podcast. This is semi intellectual musings. Oh, is that uh, what this is? <laughs> yeah, that's what that that is what this is, Matt. Uh, this is the podcast that explores social sciences, humanities, and arts. Um, we don't, as you can hear, we don't take ourselves too seriously. Um, we try to connect the published world, the academic world, to your everyday life. We do it uh, through book reviews. We do it through interviews. Uh, we keep things whimsical. Um, and what we really try to do is give you uh, our honest opinions on, you know. Topics that are relevant uh, to the to academia, topics that are relevant uh, to your everyday life, um, you know, things that are current affairs. Mm. Uh, are yeah, like um, like today's episode, we're going to talk about Fahrenheit 451, the novel by Ray Bradbury, and it's so politically relevant. It's also relevant to technology, and for me, this is one of the things I wanted this podcast to be, um, where we could take these recommendations that we love and bring them forward to a wider audience and show them, show you why these things matter, you know? Yeah. And our commitment to you is that the things we talk about, uh, the opinions that we give are our real 
opinions. Uh, we're not going to uh, bullshit you around. We're going to give you, uh, you know, the the straight up on some things. Um, with that being said, um, we'd love to hear from you, and that could be questions, concerns, uh, recommendations for future episodes. Uh, you topics, know, perhaps topics, topics? for yeah, future episodes. Cool. Get in, uh, you know, get in early uh, while uh, we're still accepting. Uh, no, we're always going to be accepting ideas for episodes, yes, but absolutely. we'd love uh, some ideas for future episodes. You can reach us in several different ways. You can reach us on Twitter, and we are at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. That's the underscore Sim underscore pod. Our email is semi-intellectual, all one word, at gmail.com, semi-intellectual at gmail.com. Or the website that you can find all the past history of the shows, uh, there's a section that's like a blog area for us. Um, and there's also a section that's additions and corrections to past episodes. That's thesim.podbean.com. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. We're on Google Play. We're on your podcatcher of choice. Search for semi-intellectual musings and you should be able to find us. Uh, give us some readings. Give us some reviews. It really helps us uh, get the quality show that we love to, uh, to give to you. And, you know, uh, we're, we're trying for two times a week, one hour format, two times a week. Sometimes it's difficult. Like I think uh, the landscaping that you've just been doing. Yeah, you know, last yeah. week uh, there was an episode that got out a bit late, but we followed it up with. Um, I, I think that was part one of the hockey cards that we followed that one up with, which yeah. is kind of a special. Which um, you know we're we're gonna try yeah. to mix it up a bit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, and today we're gonna be talking about a book that both Phil and I love, and uh, yeah, without further ado, so let's get on with the show. Let's start. Hey everyone, uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, it's Phil and Matt here. Um, on today's episode, we wanted to explore the book uh, by Ray Bradbury called Fahrenheit 451. And the complete sub um, title, I guess you would call it that, is Fahrenheit 451, the temperature at which book paper catches fire and burns. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> um, Matt, uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, this book, okay. where it comes from. So. I read Fahrenheit 451 when I was a young, impressionable youth. I think I was maybe 17. I read Fahrenheit 451, Brave New World in 1984, maybe not in that order, but that was like the, the dystopian trilogy. Kind of the classics of the, the genre. Yeah, exactly. And um, so for whatever reason, I thought Fahrenheit 451 was the best of the bunch. Like it stuck with me. The characters are really impactful and the... Um, predictions that he made in the story um, were so um, salient at that time. Like we'll get into all of these and and more, but um, I think it's it's good for um, the listener if they haven't read it to just provide a brief synopsis. Um, if you're listening on your phone, you could probably find 
nice full one if you like, and then pause it and come back. Um, there's going to be spoilers abound, I think. Yeah, this. we're yeah. we're not going to do the whole spoiler alert thing. We're just going to um, yeah. almost take for granted that uh, you've either read it or that you mm-hmm. know kind of the, how the book goes. Yeah, the the book is 65 years old. I mean, it's uh, it was published in 1953, um, and then we'll talk about the history of its publication. Um, but that's when it was published in its full form as Fahrenheit 451. But so, j- just to add to yeah. that spoiler thing. Um, the like the, almost the key to the book isn't that there's a, a a big punch or hook at the end. That that's what you know, I was like, going to say too. Yeah, the book doesn't really have anything to spoil. What I find fascinating about the book is that you can read it cover to cover uh, multiple times and get something different out of it each mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like it's uh, almost like 1984 where yeah. and Brave New World. Like yeah. those two books didn't have endings. Not really, and that was kind of the point. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's just going to be more of that. Like if you're not careful. Yeah, escalating, yeah, yeah. escalating. Uh, yeah, anyway, so. do you have a do you have a, synop- a quick synopsis uh, that you could give? Yeah, us Yeah, for sure. I found this online. It's longer, but I'm just going to read the sort of first paragraph because I think it's sufficient. It tells you the kind of whole story arc. So, um, set in the twenty fourth twenty fourth century, Fahrenheit four fifty one tells the story of the protagonist uh, Guy Montag, M O N T A G. At first, Montag takes pleasure in his profession as a fireman, burning illegally owned books and the homes of their owners. However, Montag soon begins to question the value of his profession and, in turn, his life. Throughout the novel, uh, Montag struggles with his existence, eventually fleeing his oppressive, censored society, and joining an underground network of intellectuals. So censorship is the big uh, dystopic theme in this uh, book. Um, so he uh, joins an underground network of intellectuals, people who hoarded books and uh, read them, basically. And that's what made them underground. Um, with his newfound friends, Montag witnesses the atomic destruction of his former city and dedicates himself to rebuilding a literate and cultural society. So that is the actual end is the atomic destruction of the city. But even the atomic destruction of a city, like I sort of forgot until I just read that. It's like not that significant. No, it's kind of a moot point. Yeah. Um, and, you know, multiple... Um, kind of overviews of the book all point to that kind of climactic aspect of it, which is the destruction of the city. But I never like, you know, I've read the book maybe three times now. I never really felt that that was the most important aspect of the book. Yeah. And and in the book, like it's near the end, there's still like maybe 15 pages after it. And um, he just sort of like looks over his shoulder and like sees it and just keeps like the littlest hobo just walking down the train tracks yeah. and he's just like going off to start his little intellectual commune. But um, the fact that in 1953, uh, the destruction of a city by atomic bomb would be, would freak people out. Like that would probably be the most important thing back then. So like maybe Phil, can you talk about the historical context of when this book was published and sort of what themes at that time it was responding to. Well, the so the book is published in 1953. Um, it, it's a culmination of a, a series of short essays uh, that Bradbury had written uh, prior to that. I believe one of them is called The Fireman. Um, now, the book takes place in a fictional city sometime after 1960. Uh, we're, we're not quite sure where. It's probably somewhere in the Midwest. Um but it is like a, a future that yeah, it's twenty fourth century. Kind of, yeah. kind of could resemble our current kind of situation. It struck like, me as like almost as if like you. It's almost like how the Jetsons looked, where it's like nineteen fifties style, but it's way in the future. 
Like, I got that sense that they're all dressing up like uh, Betty Crocker or whatever. Yeah. So, like, um, you know, there's lots of – one of the, the key elements of the book is that there's these TV screens that are always playing um, a show called The Family. Yeah. Okay. And let's just pause um, there and come back to that later right, because okay. I got a ton on that. I just wrote that down. Okay. So, so like, you have these kind of um, consumption of mass media in a different way. Um when we say firemen and when they mm. use the word fireman in yeah, the book, fill that out. It, it, it points to a very particular moment in time where, um, after all homes have been fireproofed. So, um, there's oh, a, can I, can I do this? Like, this is one of my it. favorite parts of the book. Um, it's such an interesting premise and that's what I think the book is so good. It's such an interesting premise, but it makes no sense. So, um, basically there was a technology that was invented. That was like a film that went over the walls and the carpets and everything that's possibly flammable in your house was coated in this thing. So firemen became redundant and then something happened. Like, it's not really clear. And then all of a sudden, firemen were um, put in charge of burning anything else that was flammable. And once they got through all the coffee tables and whatnot, they got to books. And then it's like, really, the story is about censorship and destruction of literature um, through censorship. But it's, it's bigger than that. And that, that's something I didn't like about the book. It's like, how did they get from firemen, like protecting houses to firemen burning books. Like I, yes, there was this film that every went over everyone's houses, but like, where was the ideological jump? Well, uh, okay. So we're, we're kind of, we're just going to jump into we're it. Just then. Jumping in. Okay. We're jumping in. Um, yeah, there's, there's kind of a great, uh, conversation <laughs> and okay. So the setup is, uh, you have Montag who, um, is uh, the, the main protagonist character. Um, and he works, um, well, actually he's married to, uh, uh, Millie, Mildred, yeah. Yeah, Mildred, uh, Montag. And she's so, you know, setting up the character, she's kind of like your stay at home mom, uh, but without kids, yeah. um, who's heavily consumed in the TV show, the family mm. follows orders, uh, is very orderly, um, mm. Kind she's of, like a, a consumer without even thinking about it. Like she just consumes everything that's put in and doesn't question it at all. Right. Um, now, the other character in the setup that I'm giving you uh, who's important is Captain Beatty. Now, Captain Beatty is Montag's boss. Um, he is he was once an avid reader, uh, but he's come to accept uh, the hatred of books. That is a general kind of feeling of the entire society in which they live. Um, now, he says that he hates books because of an unpleasant content. And contradicting facts and opinions. So he, he kind of sets it up that... He's like tar touting the party line on it. He's touting the party line on it, uh, but is still kind of open to the idea of rambunctiousness. Or you could, mm -hmm. you, you get the sense throughout the book that, you know, he once was kind of like a questioning mm -hmm. kind of character. He's sort of like sitting on the fence. Right. Where like if Millie is the extreme of somebody who completely buys in, BD is in the middle and then you have these underground intellectuals. So there's the character uh, Clarice, Clarice yeah. um, who is their um, Montag and his wife's next door neighbor. Yeah. And she was a, um, in school, apparently she would ask questions like why, like W-H-Y. Yes. Yeah. And that would piss off the teachers. Yeah. And then she became a school teacher in her 20s and uh, was fired for her, quote, like unorthodox teaching style. And so she's basically teaching kids critical thinking. 
Yeah. Right. And she gets fired for, for that. And, um, she's the one who is, does she give Montag his first book? No, no, she doesn't give him a book ever in the book. Um, but she starts him on the, the quest of like critical thinking. Like she was, seems like to me the, the spark. Yeah. So like how the story develops is they're in this kind of, uh, futuristic kind of society. They're hating books. Montag, uh, has this grim, uh, smile on his face, going to work every day, burning books. And then they arrive. So the book kind of starts, they arrive at a scene where they have to burn the books. So they get, they get a call, uh, kind of like a 911 call. Oh, um, you know, my neighbor has a bunch of books. They're hoarding books. They go to the scene. Uh, they discover that the whole house is covered in books. So they say, okay, everyone out, we got to burn this place down. Um, and the woman whose house it is, uh, refuses to leave. She says, no, you're going to have to burn me. Uh, I'm not burning the books. And, um, you know, no one bats an eye except Montag. Mm -hmm. So they burn her, they burn the books, they burn the house, they burn everything to the ground, um, including the woman. And Montag is not smiling. So he's kind of, you know, you see that his character is shifting. Yeah, it's the first, like, tug at his emotional, like, heartstring, which has been buried by this oppressive, like, consumer-driven society. Yeah. Yeah. But what he does before they burn the books is he slips one into his coat pocket. Ah, that's how he got it. So he slips Ah, a book into his coat pocket. And then he proceeds to burn, right? So on his walk home, he encounters Clarice. And she says, why are you looking so down? You know, what's going on? You have to kind of live in the moment, think about things. And she slowly over a few conversations with her, with uh, Montag, changes his mind about some things, or at least points him in a direction that could be uh, revealing for how uh, Montag is going to, to, to operate. Like plants the seed of doubt. Exactly. So at a certain point, um, you know, after this this horrific burning of, of the woman and her, her books, Montag says, I can't go to work. So he starts questioning his profession. You know, I, I can't be this firefighter. Mm. Um, so he's at home. Uh, and I'm, so I'm setting up the scene that gives you an inkling of kind of how, um, why we're burning books. So he's at home. He's claiming that he's sick. He doesn't want to go in. He has a book under his pillow. Clear, uh, you know, Clarice isn't there, but his wife is there. And um, Beatty, his boss, comes in, walks right into the house. Book right under his pillow. He's on his bed. Uh, Beatty's sitting in the corner, smoking a pipe, filling the room with smoke. And it's such, like, can I just say, it's such an oppressive society that if he doesn't go into work for a second, an unexcused absence, the fire chief comes to his actual house and says, like, where are you? Because they know that this is, like, the first, like, crack in somebody's armor when it comes to this stuff. And Beatty's telling Montag, you know, all firemen have been through it. Mm-hmm. I've been through it. They all go through it. There's a per- there's a certain point in your career where you start questioning what we do, mm-hmm. and um, kind of like the soldiers in World War II. Exactly right. So you know the background to this is 1953. Bradbury started writing it after World War II in the 1940s, right after Korea, actually. right after Korea. So yeah. like, there's a lot of oppressive <laughs> regimes that are operating. There's a climate where you know in the United States at least, uh, media outlets um, could have been started to be centralized, like centrally controlled. Like you yeah, see well, like the this... developed 1984 around the same time. Like, you know, it was there... the start of like um, network television. Yeah. Right. So that's what he means by centralized. Right. And 
the like you know following Marshall McLuhan, the medium of communication of of knowledge is really changing, and this is how Beattie explains to Montag uh, why you know the books became so hatred. So he says, um, and, and I'm quoting uh, from the book here, and because they had mass, they became simpler. Speaking of books, once books applied to a few people here, there, everywhere, they could afford to be different. The world was roomy, but then the world got full of eyes and elbows and mouths, double, triple, quadruple populations. Films and radios, magazines, books leveled down to a sort of paste, putting norm. You follow me? Classics cut to fit 15-minute radio shows, then cut again to fit a two-minute book column, winding up at last as a 10- or 12-line dictionary resume. I exaggerate, of course. The dictionaries were for reference. But many were those whose sole knowledge of Hamlet, you know, the little certainty, Montag, it is probably only a faint rumor of a title to you, Mrs. Montag, whose sole knowledge, as I say, of Hamlet was a one-page digest in a book that claimed, now at least you can read all the classics, keep up with your neighbors, you see? Out of the nursery, into the college, and back to the nursery, there's your intellectual pattern for the past five centuries or more. So that's wow. Beatty. And it's time stamping it a bit for the past five centuries. Five centuries, yeah. So we're probably about, to, about five yeah. centuries past 1960. Yeah. So if it's the 24th century, then uh, Bradbury is saying since like the Industrial Revolution? Um, well. <laughs> I wonder. Yeah, I don't know. Because I never thought of that. I, wouldn't, I wasn't thinking that we would think about that. Like one in that quote, the metaphor of eyes, elbows, and mouths. Yeah. Like having a population that is exploding. Um. At this time in the 50s, um, you see, you know, global conflicts, right? The Cold War is just starting. And you start um, encountering the, um, what we call in anthropology, like the colonial other. So um, nations are starting to get their independence, like in Africa and and in Asia, um, South America. Uh, So you're starting to see um, Americans especially realize that they don't live in such a small like isolated place they're actually world players with everybody else this is when america really enters the world stage i would say yeah and i think from writers like bradbury from writers like orwell uh, McLuhan, you have this they're right in the middle of how information knowledge is being um, transmitted, created, transformed in new ways. In 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 new ways, uh, for I think for many scary ways. Fright- yeah, I was about to say frightening ways. Um, yeah, most people are afraid by technological change; it freaks them out. But I think there's something to be said about how Bradbury sets this up, and I'm going to read you another quote. But sure. it, it has to do with um, you know attention span and about how much perfect you know you we can actually absorb and McLuhan talks a little bit about it, but he, here's, here, here's another quote from uh, Fahrenheit 451. Um, and this is BD talking and he says, speed up the film Montag quick, click, pick, look, I now flick here, there, swift pace up, down, in, out, why, how, who, what, where, huh? What bang, smack, wallet, bing, bang, boom, digest, 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 politics, one column, two sentences, a headline, then, in midair, all vanishes. Whirl man's mind around, about so fast, under the pumping hands of publishers, exploiters, broadcasters, that the centrifuge flings off all unnecessary time-wasting thought. That's, like, 
So think when he's writing this, 1953. So you got like the start of TV. Uh, radio's been around for a couple of decades. Um, and he's thinking that that is fast technology. You know, you got like yeah. the telegraph and the telephone. And then you, I, that immediately makes us obviously think of the internet and the, it used to be the 24 hour news cycle, but now it's like the, what, like 30 second news cycle. Like Pretty it, much, it yeah. goes so fast. And, um, like attention span and like the headlines when they're vanishing, they just pop up, pop up yep. boxes yep. in your screen, clickbait. Yep. And then they, you forget about the thing you were just uh, reading because your attention span is gone. Exactly. And this is a perfect time to talk about the reality shows on, in this book. I, I called the immediately thought of reality shows. Cause yep. when I was reading this one, I was 17 survivor uh, was on oh, and yeah, Big Brother Survivor, yeah. was out. So it was a start of reality show. So there's a show, it's called The Family. Is that right? Yeah, or The that, Dinner Party or something like that? It's called The Family. Yeah. Uh, and there's other and like shows. Yeah. yeah. There's, so she, that's Millie's favorite show. And she yeah. sits there at home watching it all day, which is probably what Bradbury saw, like quote unquote housewives, uh, forgive that outdated term, um, doing in the 50s at home with television and radio. But this show is an interactive show almost where. First off, their whole walls like would yeah. be a screen. And if you had more than one wall that was a wall screen, um, you were doing better than the Joneses kind exactly. of thing. And people would rate each other how well they were doing based on how many screens they had. So the Montags have a three screen. Three and screen. right at the beginning of the book, uh, Mrs. Montag, Melly, uh, is wanting a fourth screen to really yeah. complete the package. Yeah. And that was a classic thing in the 50s of like husband goes off to work, makes some money so that wife can keep up a nice house and look impressive, right? It's... um. It's like your value is coming from consumerism, essentially. Yeah. Like, I never thought about it, but this book is really all about consumerism. Part of it. Yeah, like, or sure. not all about. That's the thing yeah. about these great books. You can't say it's all about one thing. But anyway, this this show called Family, and there's uncles there, and they'd be like, oh, hello. Like, I think they even say your name, like Millie. It's nice. They do, yeah. Yeah, they're like, Millie, it's nice for you to join us again. Here, your seat right at the table that you like, and here's your favorite drink. And you'd have a drink there and watch, and you'd carry on these conversations for hours and hours. And um, Montag is just like, they don't talk about anything. They just talk in circles. Yeah, there's no substance. Like, there's no substance to these conversations, almost like um, um, debates on social media. Yep. And, um, you know. Hominin. Beatty justifies this and he brings up the centrifuge and the centrifuge is like in a very important part of the book. But in the quote that I just wrote, read, it says the centrifuge flings off all time wasting thought, unnecessary time wasting thought. So those What long, is the centrifuge? I, I don't remember that. Is it like literally like a nuclear? Like, well, it's a thing and it's never really pointed to as being like an item. The centrifuge is... I think Bradbury's kind of way of pointing to a, the atomicness that's going on, mm -hmm. but also how things kind of coalesce in formations that, you know, strip off. Um, like a tornado. Almost, almost like, like a tornado. Yeah. You middle, think of a central part. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. So, but I think it's composed, it's composed of a lot of kind of elements and it, and it's brought up as a recurring thing in the book. So sometimes, um, the 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 machines the sentinels that they that they're called uh, no salamanders sorry the salamander uh, oh, is kind of like uh, the device that goes that they drive around and they and they set fire to books sometimes there's also robot attack dogs as well yeah like we'll, cyborg dogs yeah and we're, we'll go we'll, to that we'll yeah. get into those yeah. but sometimes the salamander which is almost like a fire truck sort of device Montag sometimes talks about it as a centrifuge 
Um, other times when um, like there's a message from uh, the state that comes up on the TV, sometimes that's referred to as a centrifuge. So the centrifuge is brought up as a device, a literary device it's by like Bradbury. It's like a focal point, right? Like it, it right. brings you into like this theme and then that right. theme over and there. And then, you know, in this particular series of events that we're, that we're starting our discussion off where, you know, Montag's in his bedroom, Beatty's approaching him. Um, Beatty kind of feels that Montag's views are uh, around books and around what I'm going to call like the standard rhetoric is, is shifting. Like he's starting to ask those why questions. Yeah. Beatty appeals to the idea of the centrifuge. So at very particular plot development points in the book, uh, Bradbury introduces the centrifuge. And it's it's not, you know, I think as a literary device, it works. It's not as fulfilling as an answer as one would like from a completed book that walks through A to Z. But I think that's the point of it. I think the point is not that Bradbury gives us a novel that, it doesn't have any holes. I think the point is that the novel does have holes and that we have to use our knowledge, our imagination to fill it in. It's like full of rabbit holes. And like, that's what I liked about it because like here already I've said like four times, Oh, I've never thought of that right, before. Yeah. Like centrifuges. That's something I just completely forgot about. And the fire engines, the, the, salamanders, the salamanders. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what do you got for us? Well, I'm, I'm just going to continue on with this scene because well, I think this scene that, uh, you know, happens early in the book, this scene but it's, is a, it's, it's is very important. Yeah. yeah. It's very important for the book. Yeah. So later on in the conversation, um, and this is BD again, talking to Maltang, um, BD says, um, school is shortened, disciplined, relaxed philosophies, history, language dropped English and spelling gradually neglected. Finally, almost completely ignored. Life is immediate. The job counts. Pleasure lies all about after work. Why learn anything save pressing buttons, pulling switches, fitting nuts and bolts? And then he goes on uh, to another uh, point, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to wait for a second. It's, it's kind of a longer quote. Um, so what Bradbury is setting up is this kind of uh, three-prong approach to explain to us what happened in this society. So the first part is mass consumption of um, novels, of books, of literature, slowly degraded. And it, and it was in part due to the medium in which they were being shared. Mm. The second part of it was that strong institutions like school, work, shifted, right? So you mm. can see these 1950s, 1960s pressures mm. on those foundational elements of a society changing. Yeah. And those are like the, the pillars of society. Like I wrote down from that work and education uh, shifting. And earlier I had consumer culture as yeah. well. And it's interesting. This is another thing I never thought about. Um, people, it's, it's not like we consume any more or less media. It's just the type and quality of the media that we consume now. And that allows us, allows ourselves to be consumed by that media. Yeah. Now the third point that, um, Bradbury brings in, and this is what ties everything together. And it has to do with who. So we've talked about the how, the cert, the context, now the who. And this is a quote, again, the same conversation, BD talking to Montang. Now the room is filled with BD's pipe smoke. And BD says, now let's take up the minorities in our civilization, shall we? Bigger the population, the more minorities. Don't step on the toes of the dog lovers, the cat lovers, lovers, doctors, lawyers, merchants, chiefs, Mormons, Baptists, Unitarians, Second generation Chinese, Swedes, Italians, Germans, Texans, Brooklynites, Irishmen, people from Oregon or Mexico. The people in this book or this play or this TV serial are not meant to represent 
any actual painters, cartographers, mechanics, anywhere. The bigger your market, Montag, the less you handle controversy. And remember that. All the minor, minor minorities, with their navels so with their navels to be kept clean, authors full of evil thoughts, lock up your typewriters. They did. Magazines became a nice blend of vanilla tapioca. Books, so the damned snobbish critics said, were dishwater. No wonder books stopped selling, the critics said. But the public, knowing what it wanted, spinning happily, let the comic books survive. And the three-dimensional sex magazines. Of course, there you have it, Motang. It didn't come from the government down. There was no dictum, no declaration, no censorship to start with, no. Technology, mass exploitation, and minority pressure carried the trick. Thank God. Today, thanks to them, you can stay happy all the time. You are allowed to read comics, the good old confessions, or trade journals. Okay, so there's a couple of things. Uh, oh, just, perhaps just we can do just a couple of things you can get into there. Okay, so the last thing with technology, I think we'll return to in a sec. But I think the minorities is a really interesting. Well, yeah. we'll we'll deal with that first, then we'll talk about technology. So minorities, what was that line there? Look it up. Um, bigger the market, the less you do controversy or something like that. Yeah. So yeah. basically, trying to appeal to the masses, like uh, the sort of homogeneous idea of your market versus all the individual particularities of culture and individual personalities, those get washed away and you just get clumped on as like, say, Americans or something like this. Right. And what we see around the 1950s, 1960s is this melding of psychology and advertising. Oh, and you start to have the concept of mass market. And you start to have the idea that you can broaden your audience if you dumb down the message. Mm-hmm. Appeal to the lowest common de- denominator. So Bradbury's picking up on this trend and he's saying, well, what if it was brought to the extreme? What if we push that idea so far to the extreme that no minority voice could be um, hurt or every everybody, every listener needs to be able to be accepted in a message. What would that message be? Okay, so I thought you were going to go in a completely different direction than you actually did. So here's another little avenue you can go. Take us somewhere else. Um, So in the 1950s and leading into the 60s before the, the, you know, all the different movements that shattered it, um, I thought you were going to say that um, the culture that was being portrayed in the media, uh, regardless of the technological form, was white bread, wholesome like leave it to beaver style, basically. Um, and I think like what Bradbury was seeing is this homogenizing force and then all the others, like the racialized others, the gendered others, all the others with a capital O are getting excluded from the market while we're trying to just portray this squeaky clean, everyone can consume and relate to whiteness. And that meta whiteness is one thing that he predicted that actually has continued forward. And now we're just still seeing like Black Lives Matter things going on now where it's like the dominant imagery in um, in the mainstream media has been dominantly white, heterosexual, you know? Yeah. Uh, Nuclear family. It's interesting to read uh, current um, debates into past thinking. And, I, and I'm not going to say that like you're totally wrong, but I am going to disagree with you. Go for it. We um, need more disagreement on this Well, I, I, don't, I don't think that Bradbury had the same idea of what diversity meant uh, than we do today. Like I, I, I'm not actually certain that 
when he says uh, the minority voices that he's talking about ethnic uh, or cultural minorities uh, the way that you just did. Um, I oh, think, for sure. I think kind of what he's talking about is um, there's disagreement within architects uh, around a certain type of construction. Uh, there's disagreement between um, novel critics about what makes a good novel. There's disagreement between publishers about, um, you know, what book they should uh, publish next. So by the using the word minorities, I think what he's saying is, you know, there's a relative consensus about an idea. And then minority opinion. And then a minority opinion that exists uh, on, the, on the fringe. That's interesting, but that's us like reading this book written in 1953 yeah. through different lenses. And that's why it's able to pick up so many different things. Right? Well, uh, yeah. And I, and I think, you know, I, I don't want to make a claim to Bradbury, but I don't think he really cared about the same sort of minority issues that we do today. Yeah. How he could probably he? didn't. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that jumped out in that quote was technology and how we consume. And uh, I wrote down on my notes here, opiate of the masses. Right. And uh, when little, I, uh, day to uh, Karl Marx. <laughs> yeah. And when I read 19 or Fahrenheit 451, I read it alongside like the communist manifesto it was the first time I ever heard of Marx. Right. So I, when I originally read this book, I just read it as like, like a socialist sort of warning story where it's like this is as how it can get really censored and like this would be the extent of fascism i thought he was just talking about nazis right yeah yeah the you know the conversation that bd has with montag is revealing on so many different levels and you know i have another two almost two pages of quotes um mm-hmm. but i think we need to move on with, yeah. the, with the plot development a bit so what we have is um this kind of formative scene from there Multag completely rejects um, the fireman It's a process, though. It is a process. He rejects, like, in his mind, though, he rejects the idea of fireman, like, the the purpose, and I can't do this anymore. Yeah. That switch was switched, right? Yeah. Yeah. It is a process, and and I think it's written in a way that we can follow it, and it it doesn't seem like it happens too quickly, Mm -hmm. but when it starts to happen, I find the book develops very rapidly. Yeah. so, you know, after this conversation with Beatty in his, in his, in his bedroom, we learned that Montag is hoarding books. So they're saved up in the, the, the ductwork of his house. So he doesn't just have one book. He has multiple books. He's been hiding them from his wife. She doesn't know about them. And the kind of deal that was reached was he can look at them and then destroy them. Mm-hmm. So he's allowed to go and indulge in them to figure out, to find out, to see for himself how stupid these books are. Yeah, and how dangerous they are. How dangerous yeah, they are. And why they need to be. And that was the deal he struck with Beatty, is that correct? Like yeah. After they had that confrontation. Yeah. And um, and that, you can see, is Beatty being a fence-sitter where he's like, ah, I want to see, maybe this guy can like run with us and make change the system. But then on the other side, he's like, no, we have to like keep the system the way it is because the alternative is just too frightening. Yeah. So what ends up happening is, um, you know, they close all the blinds, they sit in the kitchen and they start looking through these books and his wife, Melly, just, you know, she freaks out. She doesn't want anything it. to do yeah. with this. He ends up trying to convince her. She says she doesn't understand anything that's written. And he just, he's just reading these quotes of these books and about, you know, look, look, look what it says about life. Look what it says about what we should be paying attention to. And then all she's concerned about is tuning into her next episode of The Family. Mm. And that particular evening where they get together on the floor to look at the books, 
she had already planned for a, a viewing with the neighbors of the family. So these people are coming over. Oh, right. Yeah. So it's setting up. It's, it's a it's, classic sitcom like situation where exactly. you're like, oh, the neighbors are coming over. Do it's, it? <laughs> it's foreshadowing uh, a series of events that will ultimately lead uh, Montaigne down a path that is not his choosing. So before we go down the path that is not of his choosing, we should talk about their marriage because at the beginning, very beginning of the book, it's like, oh yeah, yeah. okay, this is something like odd here, but like yeah, they they're cohabitating and they they have a marriage, um, and as soon as that switch gets flipped and he has that um, uh, meeting with her on the floor or whatever, and when they look at the books and she doesn't go with him, it was almost like he was trying to have for the very first time in their marriage like a relationship conversation and like let's try to relate to each other and see. And yeah. then she just completely rejected it. Yeah. It was a like, last chance for her. And it's like about these neighbors coming over who she probably doesn't really like. And they're doing this whole keeping up with the Joneses thing. So she probably just talks smack about them because they, they rumor monger each other as well. Right. Yeah. You know? Um, so, yeah. so what so. gives us the indication that um, his marriage uh, isn't very, you know, on foundation is he comes home from work one night, very early in the book, and um, Millie uses and other people use sleeping pills to sleep mm -hmm. at night. Yeah. So they put in this little um, earbud. Yeah, it's like an iPod. That's what, like that was the other thing I really wanted to talk about. But like when I was reading this, like Apple came out with the iPod, and I'm like, oh my god, it's like a discman that they're listening yeah. to or whatever. So it's these, it's this kind of wireless. Yeah. They call them seashells. Right? Seashell. Yeah. yeah. So it's a wireless seashell. Kind of looks like the new um, uh, Bluetooth um, like little earpod earbud yeah. uh, from Apple. But you put it in one ear, and then you listen to the station. Like, there's no choice. You just yeah. listen to whatever's yeah. playing. And it's kind of like a, the idea that everyone's consuming the same thing. Yeah, like in 1984. This is like yep. the, the screens that always have Big yep. Brother's messages and, it's kind and of stuff. Messages. Or like North Korea right yeah. now. Yeah, so it's kind of messages, but music, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So she puts one of those in and then takes sleeping pills. But... Um, she can never remember if she's taken them. So she ends up taking too many. Ah. So he comes home from work and the pill bottles on the floor and she's comatose in her bed. They sleep in separate beds. She's comatose in her bed and he goes, holy shit. She OD'd. So he has to call the OD people to come in. Now it's such a, uh, a, a normal business mm. and they go through the process of, you know, calling these OD people show up, and like yeah. the machine is grimy, their hands are dirty. It looks like they've dealt with like 30 calls that same night. And they basically remove all the fluid and stuff from inside of her. So they flush her out, right? Mm. And then they give her a new inside. Like changing the oil in a car. Ch changing the oil in a car. Yeah. And then they pack her up, leave her in her bed, oh. and then, and then, and then and then boot it. And he's like, well, what's going on? Like that, that's it. And think yes. about what that says about 1950s, like consumer culture, where it's like disposable standardized, um, yep. like pieces of things that you buy. And it's just like, even the human body is just like some sort of thing that to consume media, I guess. Yeah. Uh, almost like this empty vessel. Right. Yeah. So, um, so she recovers, uh, he comes home and then he finds her taking more of these pills. Now, the thing is, it's insinuated in the book, this isn't the first time that happens, mm. but it's also insinuated that she doesn't remember the OD episode mm. um, for w whatever reason. Um, and she continues to take these pills and he's very much against uh, taking these the, these sleeping pills. Um, she isn't uh, whatever. They have disagreements. They sleep in separate beds. So we, we understand that his marriage isn't going too well. 
And this uh, is clearly just a quick uh, little connection to make. This is clearly about um, um, like barbiturate use in the fifties. Uh, they, they used to call them like there Mama's Little Helper or yep. whatever, yep. the little blue pill. And uh, they're like tranquilizers, and that's exactly what she was taking. Nowadays, obviously, it's SSRIs and um, painkillers and opiates and things, but yeah, the same same shit. Yeah. So um, they're on. Uh, they're sitting in the floor trying to read these books. She doesn't want anything to do with it. Uh, friends are coming over. Now, this is kind of, uh, in my reading anyway, the 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 switch, right? Um, Montag decides to read publicly to the audience. Right. He a reads a poem, right? Poetry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he so he just stands up in the middle of their show, turns oh, off the show. And this part is like such a tense moment. You're just like, oh, I know he's going to do it. So, yeah. so the idea is no one's supposed to have books, yeah. right? No one outside of Montag and Millie, his wife, know, and, and, and Beatty know that he has books. And Beatty doesn't know how many books he has. Um, he Maybe just knows he kept that he a has couple one. or whatever. He, says, yeah. he, he knows that he has the one the that, one under the pillow. That, that he took yeah. uh, that was under the pillow. Um, but Montag finds poetry, reads the poetry. And the women who are overwatching the show cannot handle it. They freak out. They leave. Mm. Right. So they go back it's like to it. They had like nervous breakdowns or something. They, like, they, ah! So they laugh them out, you know, just start laughing at them. Yeah. What is this? It's rubberish, gibberish. Sorry. You yeah. can't understand anything. And they leave. And Motag's pissed. Now, almost immediately after, you hear the salamander come. And the salamander is the, you know, no, sorry, that's not what happens. He goes to work. Mm-hmm. He, so he reads the thing and then says, okay, I got to go to work. So he goes to work, ends up at work, joins his, his buddies at work, and then they get a call. Right, right, yeah. They get a call. We we found someone. Someone's called it in. There's a house with books. We got to go. And they're etching towards his his neighborhood, and he's thinking, what the fuck is – this is like my next-door neighbor. So he thinks it's Clarice's house. Mm. Next-door neighbor, very intelligent girl. They pull up in front of his house and he, and he turns to Beatty and he says, well, what are you doing? This is my house. And he goes, yeah, and you're going to burn it down. Ooh. So he's faced with this decision, right? Burn down his house and his wife runs out of the house, gets in the car, leaves. She's no longer in the house. Do I burn down my house or do I turn around and burn down the salamander, burn everything? And what does he do, Phil? Well, actually, let's save that one. No, wait, we have no, to. no, we we got. There's go no way. It. Like it's not even we like the end it. of the book. That's the it, problem it's, with this it's book. like the middle of the book. It's like the middle. Yeah, yeah. So so he turns around and he uh, burns Beatty, mm. and he burns the salamander. Oh really? And he <laughs> burns the mechanical dog. So uh, there's this kind of scent. Um, high like the U.S. Army has them now. It, 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 they do. You can Google them. You can see like YouTube videos of them. They're like uh, cyborg dogs. Basically. It's a cyborg dog. It's yeah, a it's a dog. computer yeah. dog. Yeah. It, it has high sense of smell and it can uh, follow a trail. Yeah. Um. So he he tries to to burn that thing. Does it? Burns the salamander. Kills Beatty in the process. And now he's on the run. Yeah. Now he's a fugitive. Now he's and a fugitive. Is this where we meet Faber? Is that where this Faber is, comes in? Uh, we Somewhere met, Faber came in. We, yeah, like, we met Faber a bit before. Faber yeah. is an English teacher. Yeah, like, uh, a, like a university prof or something. He's like very old. Like yeah. He was from like back before the censorship was like so strong, back where yeah. they could like teach maybe a few um, approved books. Yeah. yeah. And Faber is kind of like a, uh, a hermit now, lives yeah. alone. And um, It's what me and Phil aspire to be in 50 years. 
and uh, BD BD finds Faber. Um, I don't know. I forget I how he with finds my him. books. I I don't know. That's but, but it's not really but that meets, significant. I think he sees Faber. Oh, he, in a I park. think he meets him through uh, Clarice. Through Clarice, yeah, because she's a school teacher, right? Right. Um. So yeah, meets Faber, uh, brings him a book, mm. and you know it's one of these uh, books that are, are to be cherished or whatever, and you know basically. Works at a deal of favor uh, to recopy the book down before mm-hmm. he gets rid of it. Like, is there a way that you can copy this book right, down? Right, transcribe them, yeah. Transcribe it. Um, I don't think he actually does at that time. No. Um, so, yeah, we've met Faber. And Faber is is Montag's into this underground, like, l- rebellious literary group, which is kind of like, it's almost like Ray Bradbury's like, I'm edgy too. <laughs> like, he's like, he wants to be part of an underground literary circle. Right. Uh, so after Montag, uh, you know, kills Beatty, burns the salamander, is basically on the run, he goes to Faber's house. Yeah. Right? Um, so... And and don't forget, too, at this time, I'll just... Well, Phil's finding his quote in there. Um, in the early 50s, they also had the beat the beatnik generation, right? Where in the early 50s, these are like the, the jazz musicians. They're like, hey, man, skippity-bop. But um, these were like the underground... Um, sort of circles of intellectuals at the time as well. So I think his underground literary circle is somewhat like beat generation kind of kind of in style. But anyway, what do you got there? Yeah. So um, you know, the book develops. Um, Montag is on the run. He has Faber, who's going to come and help him out. This is a very exciting part of the book. Too. It is. It's when it really picks up. It's the action part of the book. Yeah. Um. I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, Montag working out the scene that I like, uh, Montag goes to Faber's house and says, Oh shit, you know, I really fucked up. Uh, I, I need your help. And Faber gives him some old t-shirts, some, some sneakers to help, help him on the run. Yeah. And, and to, um, mask the, um, his smell so that these, um, killer attack dogs won't uh, be able to follow him. So he gets these new clothes and then he runs like through a, a ditch, like some water to like further mask his smell. And kind of like shakes, I think, the the attack dog. He does shake the attack yeah. dog. What's interesting is they, uh, Faber and Montaigne know that uh, it get, when, once it gets to a certain point, they're going to bring in a helicopter. Uh, they're going to bring in this very highly specialized uh, attack dog to track him down. And at a, a particular moment, every screen in the city will be turned to open their doors to see where... Montag is running. Right. They're like, look outside and find Montag. And so, it becomes like, it became like the OJ Simpson uh, chase or whatever. Yes, right? it was, it was extremely yeah. similar to that, but yeah. yet written years before. Or, or America's Most Wanted. America's Most Wanted. Yeah. So the scene is set up. Montag is running through oh, the streets and he kind of has to hide in the water. Right. Uh, right. But, he, but everyone's listening to this chase, right? Because he killed the fire chief. He's a wanted criminal. Um, so it, it goes well beyond just having a book at this point. So he can hear because everyone's listening he, to the he's same like channel. the criminal number one. Like he is the poster boy literally yeah. for like everybody's anger that was really should be directed towards the state. <laughs> Let's be honest. Right. Yeah. He's a scapegoat. So he's here, he's hearing everything and he hears the countdown five, four in four seconds, open your front doors and you're going to see him. If you do, you have to call it in three Two and then he jumps and he hears all the doors open. Yeah. So everyone is listening. Everyone's following the the, the command. To try to find him. Yeah. It's like every door in like Wisconsin opened at the same time. Could you imagine what that sounds like? Yeah. Exactly. 
Um, so, yeah. um, when, while, while he's, uh, talking with Faber, uh, mm-hmm. sorting out where to go, yeah. he has to get to the railway tracks that lead to out of town. Right. Yeah. And because it's like a lockdown, like it's almost like they're doing a siege on themselves. Like it's a, a siege, like a city that's not being sieged from the outside, but they're being sieged from within. Right. So if you can just get past these city lines, it's almost like the countryside. Uh, 1984 had a similar thing and so did Brave New World. Yeah. Yeah. So it's this, um, you know, Bradbury creates this environment for us where you have this uh, almost like a highly metropolis uh, city center and then forest countryside on the outside. Yeah. And, you know, the device that Bradbury uses is the the railway tracks, which mm-hmm. is probably common. Harkens back as well. Uh, harkens back to like the 1930s, 1940s kind of idea that you could walk on a railway track and end up somewhere. Railways were thought of as like freedom, right? It's like you right, jump on yeah. the, ride the rails and then you can just end up in like Kansas City or something. And Faber uh, tells Montag um, that he thinks that there are outcasts who uh, live kind of mm. on the outside of the city who like, travel like hobos <laughs> basically like, that's what i thought of as like, like the hobos. classic hobo that hangs out on the by the railway and and these hobos what they actually do is that they are the new keepers of the books right and um so faber says i you know i've heard stories about them i've never actually met them something like this but if you go out there you're gonna meet some someone so uh, Montag follows his cue. He gets out there. He's, you know, on the railway tracks and he meets Granger. And Granger is the leader of this group who preserve the knowledge that is that are found in books. As Montag, Montag is meeting with Granger, they're out on the outskirts. The bombing happens. And this is something, so we didn't talk about it. Yeah. But there is an impending war. Yeah. So just like, um, um, just like 1984, like they're always at conflict with some other like super continent. They're always at conflict. There's almost like a countdown. They know the bombing will start, but they don't know when, and they don't know how extensive it's going to be or where it's going to be. It was like the, speaking to the inevitability of the atomic uh, war that they thought was going to happen at any moment in the fifties. So once Montaigne gets out there, um, the war starts, he hears the sirens, uh, planes come in and they bomb the city. And the city is basically destroyed. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Now, the book could have ended there. Yeah, that's, that's, because that's what I was saying. There's like, there's like 25 pages left or something. There's like a lot. (laughs) There are 25 pages left. Those pages are filled with dialogue between Montaigne and Granger Mm. um, about how they keep the books. So Mm. this network uh, keeps the books through memory. so they've read it and they remember it. And there are members of uh, the group who can remember entire books. So each person becomes a book. Okay. So I'm literally grabbing my head because my mind has just been blown. I've never thought of this before, but um, this is almost like uh, Bradbury is giving us a roadmap, a, a plan. Like if this does happen, if we spiral out of control with this technology and this consumer culture and this um, just not critically thinking, this is how we rebuild um, a, a thinking society. Yes. That's exactly what he's basically telling Whoa. us to do. And he's telling us to do it through this group of kind of outcasts who each remember either a part of a book or the entire book. And what stands out to me, and I'm not, you know, quoting a page or anything, is that this one person can recite, you know, Plato. You know, yeah. all, all he did was read Plato and he yeah. can recite Plato ver, verbatim almost. So he doesn't, he no longer needs to carry around 
the book. And it was the book that stood as a symbol and a device in the book, in, in Bradbury's novel, as what needed to be destroyed. But there's a great quote near the end by Faber that says something to the effect of, but they can't destroy your mind. If you right. don't let them, they can't destroy your mind. Yeah, that's the famous quote in this book. Yeah. And that's where you see how the how the parts build on each other to interact in a certain way. So you need to, t- to take the sleeping pills. You need to watch the TVs. You need to consume bits and pieces of information so that you don't remember the long format of the book. Yeah, or the context either. Exactly. Yeah, you're unable to make connections. And um, I, again, was like, this time I was grabbing my chin because I was like, whoa, I'm also mind blown. Um, it's interesting that like, we always think of the advent, like the spread of literacy after the printing press, and it was a slow spread, but eventually like the democratization of knowledge. Um, we think of that as a great liberator, but what Bradbury shows us and what we're experiencing now, I think, in the internet, social media, and the whatever 30-second like news cycle, as I said, is that we're inundated with information so that we don't like we don't have any understanding, even though we know things but they're all just disconnected, discombobulated. Right. Yeah. So I think that speaks to two things about, um, you know, quantity and quality, but also, but also depth. Like you can go deep or you can go wide. Right. And, um, there's a tendency towards going wide in those Mm -hmm. rapid news cycles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when I was 17 and I was reading Fahrenheit 451, I knew I had to read Brave New World in 1984 as like companion pieces. Right. And that's how I treated a lot of my, early reading like i something happened when i was like 15 maybe where i was like i'm just going to read everything that everybody says is an important book like i just want to build up my catalog of you must read this book or this author before you die and um like because i was a teenage boy probably um like these dystopian novels really like struck a chord with me and then if i think about the like, you know, 9-11 happened when I was, like, what, 19 or something like this. So, like, I'd read these dystopic novels when I was, like, 18. Then 9-11 happens, like, a year later. Yeah. And the whole world changes. Yeah. And we've seen the media landscape change. Like, I remember my mom calling me in from outside saying, come quickly. I, um, they're chasing O.J. Simpson. Yeah. And you have to watch this. And she sat me down. I'm like, this is boring, right? She's like, no, you have to watch this. This is news happening right now and it was mind-blowing and they just had a continuous feed of it and it was the first time we ever experienced non-stop news no yeah. commercial breaks it was crazy yeah. i remember rodney king getting beaten and the riots um yeah. that happened afterwards i remember these key change moments and something that i've always wanted to say to a wider public but it seems like these catastrophic moments are happening more frequently and more closely together to a point where they don't seem so catastrophic anymore. Like, does anyone bad an eye at, well, obviously we do, but like, does anyone bad an eye at a school shooting anymore? Right. They're so common, right? Or terrorist attacks have become this way, where it's almost like, I don't know. It, I don't know. I right. Don't know. Um, I hit the bottom of the rabbit hole. <laughs> hit the bottom of the rabbit hole. Uh, yeah. You know, Fahrenheit 451 has been classified as a book about censorship. Mm. Um, I think the way that I've at least read it, and I think, you know, Matt's read it in a similar way, I, I, yeah, I would yeah. I think, is that it touches on a lot of different things 
than just censorship. So many more. Um, We talked about, you know, the social dynamics of marriage, uh, the social dynamics of um, living in a metropolis center. 1950s consumer culture, pharmaceutical, uh, drug use, um, media, uh, attention span, the internet. You know, although not speaking of the internet, it speaks of something like that, right? Shit, they had iPods. (laughs) Only one channel, though. (laughs) Only one channel. no playlist on those things. (laughs) Well, so yeah, so then it speaks to a more profound kind of question about what it means to to have an existence. Mm. And I think um, there are critics of the book. Is this an existential novel? Well... This is kind of sorry. I this just is, jumped way ahead. Yeah, this sorry. Is, this is There's kind a punchline. This is kind of what I'm leading up to, yeah. right? I think there are a lot of critics and readers of the book who categorize it as a, a book about books. But really, is it a book about books or is it a book about ourselves? And in my opinion, any great novel leaves you with that thought: What does this mean to be human in this time? What does it mean? Why am I here? What are we doing? And the last pages where, you know, I said the book could have ended, but it doesn't, is what makes the book great. It's that part of the book that a lot of people complain about because it's a lot of lengthy dialogue and there's not a lot happening. But it's that part of the book that allows you to understand everything else that's happened in it. And so Montag, um, they set off walking back towards the city. So they're leaving the city, the, the bombings happen. And they say, okay, now it's time for us to, to return. That's our duty. Mm. And they speak of it as they were born to do that. They were born mm. to keep the novel almost like a, keep, a keeper of the flame or a keeper mm. of some sacred knowledge, return to the city and rebuild. And the idea that you could rebuild a civilization that for, as Beattie said in the opening scene, five centuries has been living under this continual decay by a group of, I don't know, Two, three hundred people. So that's Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> yeah, there's so much more there, in there. there there's a lot in there. Books. We could have uh, dropped a lot more quotes. We could yeah. have done a lot of things. Highly recommend it. If you haven't read those three, like 1984, Brave New World, Fahrenheit 451, I I might say just go start with Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. yeah. Like this, I think, is the best of the three. You know, I don't, uh, on today's episode, um, we're not going to have a recommendation section because yeah. I think uh, unanimously read Fahrenheit 451. And, and we came up with this uh, idea for this episode spontaneously. It was like, hey, let's do a novel that we both like. That's what Phil said in the yeah. text. And I was texting him Fahrenheit 451. I hit send. And before mine sent through, he already said Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. So it was happened. like, we just assumed that Google was like spying on us because we've read Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, I'm sure that a, a book like this could be discussed at length for many hours across many episodes. Um, I'm positive that, we, that we've left some stuff out. I'm positive that we made some errors. I'm positive that we stressed uh, points that maybe shouldn't have been stressed or vice versa. We'd love to hear your comments about uh, our review of Fahrenheit 451. You can reach us on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. That's the SimPod. Email us your questions, your comments, um, you know, your hate mail or your praise mail at semi-intellectual at gmail.com. Our website is thesim.podbean.com and there uh, we're going to post in the additions and corrections. Anything that you send in to us, uh, we'll post it there. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any other podcatcher that you use. Uh, Search Semi-Intellectual Musings. 
Matt and I really love doing this show. Um, been de- de- delivering it twice a week in the hour format. Been a it's it's been a journey so far. Yeah, yeah, an enjoyable journey. Uh, we're nearing our tenth episode. Yeah, very exciting. Uh, so, you know, we'd love to get some ideas for what that tenth episode should be. Matt and yeah. I have floated around some uh, some provision. Provisional, provisional, <laughs> provisional ideas, yeah. um, but we really kind of want to mark the the the, yeah. the tenth episode. So um, by the time this posts, uh, you'll have uh, about a week, I guess, to 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 let us know what we should do for the tenth episode. So uh, tweet at us, email us, uh, send us your your ideas. Yeah, keep All on right. reading. Keep on reading. Yeah.